welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Sexting has become the new go-to method for flirting and telling our partners what we're into. It has become so common that it's not a stretch to say that sexting is the new first base. It's an integral part of how we connect with others sexually in the modern world in both casual and committed relationships. But this is both good and bad. On the one hand, sexting is a handy way to boost arousal and passion, to share your fantasies and desires, and to facilitate in-person sex. But on the other hand, sexting can also happen in ways that are coercive or harassing. And sometimes the contents of our sexts, which are usually meant to be private, get shared in ways that lead to shame embarrassment, or scandal. So today's episode is all about the good, bad, and very, very ugly of sexting. Some of the topics we'll explore are the link between sexting and relationship satisfaction, how to practice safe sexting, as well as the dark side of sexting, including why so many men send unsolicited dick pics. We'll also discuss deception in online sexual behavior. For example, how common is it for people to lie? What kinds of things do people lie about? And how do you spot a potential scam artist like the Tinder swindler? My guest is Dr. Michelle Druin, a behavioral scientist and expert on technology, relationships, and sexuality. She is a professor of psychology at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, and author of the new book, Out of Touch, How to Survive an Intimacy Famine, which we discussed in the previous episode. Michelle has published an extensive body of research on sexting, and I can't wait to dive into it. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, Michelle, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm so excited to be back. So let's talk about sexting. Now, as someone who has studied this extensively, let me first start with the definitional question. How do you define sexting? Are we talking about sexy texts, emojis, photos, videos, all of the above? And does there have to be sexual or romantic intent on the part of the sender? So, for example, can you send platonic sexts? And I ask this because I know some people who are friends who will like randomly text each other nude photos for fun and they think it's humorous, but there's not like that sexual intent behind it. So I'm curious for your take on what counts as sexting. 
Wow, the platonic sext. I'd never heard of that. Is there any research on that? If not, I need to do it now. Beat you to the punch. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I know of. No, nor do I. Interesting. So yeah, I would say all of the above, right? It, it is really the intent of the sender usually and the person receiving it that would define it as sexual or not, or you know, sexually arousing or not. But I think words and images and videos, any emojis of a sexual nature could all be considered sexting under a wide definition. And I think though, most people do parse those out when they're studying them. Some people want to know only about the images and the videos. And I also think that's really appropriate to do it empirically so that you can get a different sense of frequency, you know, prevalence, and then also just how that relates to different personality traits. But yes, all of it. And you're right that in the research, sometimes you'll see people make a distinction between these different forms. Sometimes they don't, and that can make it sometimes hard to compare the results across different sets of studies. I think when a lot of people hear the term sexting, their mind immediately goes to photos or videos, but I think it can be so much broader than that. Uh, So for example, for people who might not be comfortable with the idea of putting nudes out there, you know, there are other ways to engage in sexting where, you know, if you have a certain intent or purpose behind it to, for example, flirt with a partner, you can still do it without having those, you know, sort of same privacy concerns. Not only can you, can you still do it, I would argue in some cases you can do it more effectively. If arousal is psychological, if it's in the mind, then tempting someone or arousing them with your words might be even more powerful than an image, depending on who your partner is. And especially if they're a sapiosexual and they're turned on by intelligence. Exactly. (laughs) So let me ask, how common is sexting. Now, I know it's probably going to depend on the definition of it that you're talking about, you know, whether it's text versus photos versus videos and so forth. But what do we know about how many people have ever sent or received a sext? Oh, the statistics vary widely, as you say, based on the definition provided in the particular article. And I know there have been some meta-analyses done. For adolescents, I think it's about half and of Adolescents have sent a sext by the time that they're, you know, seniors. And then as you get into young adulthood, and you're talking about within a context of a committed relationship, we have about 80% who've sent them. The relationship context matters, whether you're talking about text or video or pictures, that matters. But I think anywhere from, you know, 50 to 80%. And then when you look at older adults, so people who maybe are less likely to be using digital means to communicate sexually, maybe because they just didn't grow up with it. We usually see lower prevalence rates, though. I think some recent studies, there's that novel sex tech study out of the Kinsey Institute. That's a new study. And I, I'm, I was actually really surprised that sexting was common, even among people who are in their 50s and 60s, you know, were sending sex messages. I can't remember the percentage, but it was of the categories listed, one of the most popular things right below, you know, watching pornography. So interesting. Now it's making me think we need more research on senior sexting and platonic sexting. You know, there are all of these other avenues that, you know, haven't yet been explored. I think we've only kind of scratched the surface with the way that we're kind of engaging with other people online sexually. 
We absolutely do. And especially if we think about social isolation as you get older and loneliness as you get older. And I think you and I share a belief that sex is a positive thing that someone might be able to bring into their lives. So yeah, senior sexting seems like if it caught on, it could be something that greatly enriches the lives of seniors if they feel comfortable doing it. So yeah, that does sound like a good research study. And it might counterbalance a lot of the recent news reports about STI outbreaks in nursing homes and so forth. You know, having that other option or outlet for expressing your sexuality might be particularly helpful for, say, a vulnerable population like that. Absolutely. Now, in your research on sexting, you talk about both the positive and negative aspects of it. So on the one hand, sexting can be a fun way of flirting or building up anticipation for sex. But on the other hand, you also talk about it as being a potential non-consensual behavior or sometimes even a coercive behavior. So can you tell us a little bit about what people's overall experiences with sexting are usually like. So how much of the time is it this positive experience that might enrich a relationship and maybe contribute to better sex? And then how much of the time is it this negative experience? And I know the answer is going to vary across genders, given that we know men are more likely to engage in non-consensual sexting. But what have you found? What can you tell us about sort of people's overall experiences with it? So in one of the studies I did a few years ago, we found that there were more positive consequences than negative. More people cited fun, flirtation, it enriching their sex lives in some way. So the consequences of sexting were more positive. And then the negative consequences were really different based more on relationship type than gender. So people who were sexting with a casual partner seemed to have more negative consequences than those who were sexting with a committed partner. They had more fear, more worry. They thought that their photo was shared or sent without their permission. Although, you know, you see there are some gender differences differences, you also see there are some real relationship context differences that influence whether or not a sexing experience is very positive for you. And I think one of the things that could be done in this research area that would really enrich it is actually to do some type of longitudinal study where you follow up back with these people and say, okay, well, now you said this then, but now what do you say 10 years later? And certainly for the coercive sexual experiences, they saw that women who were coerced into sexting, they felt worse about it than they felt about being coerced into sex, both now and looking back on events that had happened. So I just think that that's really telling because sexting does have a permanence that physical sex acts don't have. And I think it seems like something that comes back to haunt people. That's such an interesting and and worthwhile point. And I think it makes sense in a lot of ways that you know, when you're talking about coercive sexting, that there's going to be this digital record of it, and then that could potentially be turned into revenge porn or or something else where this other person might have blackmail or other leverage power over you. And so it is this whole other beast in, in terms of how it can affect people and their long-term psychological adjustments. So I'm glad that you are studying this because I think it's something that does happen with some frequency and We need more attention, certainly, to that area and more broadly to that issue of revenge porn, which is increasingly being made illegal in different parts of the country. And I know just as a sidebar, you do a fair amount of expert witness work in the work that you do. And so just out of curiosity, is it often about 
you know, this non-consensual or coercive sexting. Just feed my curiosity about what you do with expert witness work. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that comes up. I mean, digital, I will say digital evidence is becoming standard in almost any case now. So you can see coercive tactics sometimes in digital evidence, whether that be around sexting or some other kind of act. And so although it's a small part of what I do overall, it is something that does come up. Coercive sexting, I would say... One of the things, one of the cases that I, I was a part of, it was a case where it was more threatening tactics used to get sexual favor. So more like sextortion than any kind of sexual coercion. You know, coercion is, yeah, I didn't want to do it, but I still did it. I still consented to doing it. Whereas sextortion is really getting people to do something they absolutely do not want to do and blackmailing them and threatening them. I think those sextortion cases might come up more and more, which is concerning. But one of the things I want to say, and I I think that you'd likely agree, but I feel like there were people early on, I remember there was an article by Parker really early on that said, sexting might be able to be used as an intervention for couples who are having sexual issues. The novelty, you know, that people might seek, maybe it could be filled by spicing up your life with just these little electronic messages that maybe make your partner or partners think that you're thinking about them in the day and, you know, looking forward to sex with them at night. It doesn't even have to be anything really explicit. It could be even just romantic. And I feel like although we're embracing a more sex positive narrative around sexting, that hasn't really been explored much in the literature. So how it could be used to enrich a couple's life. And probably because you know, one of the studies that I did with Adam Gallivan and Brandon McDaniel, we saw that these really frequent sexters had a host of negative correlates in terms of other aspects of their lives. So there's really nothing from a correlational perspective that suggests that this would improve lives. So maybe that's the reason. But again, I'm I'm holding out hope that maybe there is some space. If most people have positive consequences, especially within committed relationships, maybe there's some space in which to make sexting work for a couple. Yeah, I think the sexting intervention would be fascinating. And I haven't seen anything quite like that. I've collected a little bit of data where I ask people about their sexting behaviors. And specifically, this happened during the pandemic. And we found that a lot of people tried sexting for the first time. But as we talked about in the previous episode, people who tried sexting for the first time, that didn't necessarily buffer the negative impact of social isolation and so forth on them. And so that was specifically focused a bit more on singles in terms of whether that was meeting their sexual and intimate needs. So I'm going to have to go back and look at the romantic couples to see if those who tried sexting uh, maybe had better outcomes, because I might be able to have a little bit of evidence that could potentially speak to that. But I also appreciate you sharing all that information about your expert witness work. I actually do a fair amount of expert witness work myself, and I'm always reading in all of these cases, these very extensive trails of text messages. So I'm sort of a texting detective, if you will, just like you are in a lot of that work. And it is absolutely fascinating. And we're going to have to go out and get coffee or drink sometime and talk about it because there's just so much to unpack and explore there. Absolutely. It's interesting, as you've seen, I think when we, 
you send messages, you've likely heard and maybe even testified about the online disinhibition effect. So Suler has this great article where he really lays out the theory and then talks about the features of the internet that makes this online disinhibition happen, such as asynchronicity and a relative anonymity and solipsistic interjection, you know, the fact that you might be reading or even someone else's messages in your own words, right? It gives you just amount of distance to maybe make your online life very different from your offline life. Um, so what I always find fascinating when I'm reading these records of investigation is even though we know that we are being surveilled, I mean, I think we know this by now, <laughs> with Snowden's whistleblowing and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, I mean, we know that we're being watched. And yet, I think many of us use our phones so haphazardly, thinking our records will never be subpoenaed. No one's ever going to find out what's on my phone. And as you know, those programs can pull up things that you've deleted. It can show your deleted messages on Snapchat. It can show your deleted messages on WhatsApp. And if you think about that for a second, it's scary because your entire life is usually recorded on your phone. And so I think the real impact of being involved in these court cases for me has been just seeing that backstage of people's lives in a way that even though I know it's happening, it's so scary to actually see it all on paper. <laughs> and I, and yeah. it's, it, you know, it's, it's a true window to everything that someone does when normally we only see the facade. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you think about how things can be taken out of context from all of this. And where I often get called in is talking about the difference between fantasy and desire. And so what somebody writes in a text message, you know, does that necessarily signify their intent that they want to act on this, that this is a desire for them? Or were they just talking about and sharing their fantasies for purposes of sexual arousal? And when you take these very small segments out of context, you can easily come up with very misleading interpretations and conclusions about what it is that this person actually wants to do, what their broader psychology is, what their risk profile is. So it is just absolutely fascinating work. And I'm going to do a whole episode in the future on just sort of the interesting inner workings of being an expert witness in sex-related court cases, because there's, there's a lot going on there. Absolutely. I hope you'll have me join you. I would love to talk about it more. I will. I want to put together a whole panel of people who have covered it from, from different angles. So I will be in touch about that. Now, since we mentioned non-consensual sexting, let's talk about dick pics for a moment. We know that a lot of people have the experience of receiving an unsolicited dick pic, a phenomenon that some people in the media refer to as dick bombing. So as a psychologist, let me ask for your take on why you think so many guys send these unsolicited nude photos in the first place. And further, if you're on the receiving end of one of these unwanted photos, what should you do? So, you know, I recently was writing up something and I was contrasting men and women in just some biological, maybe not even biological, maybe socialized differences in their sexual feelings. And what most studies have shown pretty consistently is men have more intense sexual fantasies, greater sexual desire, 
uh, a host of other things as compared to women. And so women are often considered gatekeepers of sex, but that's not exactly true either because although men do make more bids for sex, they're equally likely to turn down sex. So women are not turning it down more, so it's not really a gatekeeper. Instead, um, men are just asking more. So I think if you have that as your mind frame, that men maybe think about sex more, they have these more intensive fantasies, they um, have usually report higher levels of sexual desire, though as you get older, sexual desire seems to be, if there are problems in a relationship, equally cited by men and women then it does make you think sexting when it's initiated by men and they send these pictures unsolicited. Maybe it's a bid for sexual attention in a way that maybe they would like. <laughs> they would love to see an unsolicited you know, boob pic or unsolicited picture of you naked. And so I think they're hoping pick for pick, you know, which is a common saying, pick for pick. And maybe if I get that going, then I'm going to get one in return, which would be a real turn on for me. So, you know, I know that in some contexts, these unsolicited pictures are used to harass or used to try to intimidate or um, to hurt someone. But I think in many cases, men are hoping for that pick-to-pick -pick exchange. If you get one unsolicited, um, there are several ways. And I would say not only that unsolicited, but if you get someone who's asking you to send a picture, asking you to see you naked, asking you, engaging you in any kind of sexual banter, because that's really what it is, right? It's the start of a sexual conversation. The way to get out of it is either to absent yourself quietly and ghost the person if you found it offensive, if you really don't want to have a relationship with them, that's a perfectly legitimate way to respond to a sexual overture like that. Or you can just say, I don't do that. Let's do something else. Or if you like the person, you want to have a relationship, I'm not ready. I don't think I'll ever be ready. Whatever it is that is your stance. There are a lot of ways to respond to it based on how you feel about it. When some people get those pictures, they're really not offended. They've seen hundreds of them. <laughs> they really don't care. Some people are happy. They, they like it. It shows that that person has sexual desire. So I think there are a lot of different ways to react, but just be true to yourself. You have no pressure to respond in any particular way. And just based on base your reaction on how you want the relationship to proceed and whether or not that relationship actually means something to you. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. Now, we have more to discuss, including tips for safer sexting and deception in online dating. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesson can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, 
free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at Promescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. Now, as someone who has written about and studied sexting extensively, I'm curious to hear whether you have any practical suggestions for people who might be engaging in this behavior or are curious about trying it. So how do you do it in a way that's likely going to have positive effects? And how do you address the potential privacy concerns that we talked about previously? You know, something that I think makes a lot of people hesitant about this activity is the potential for other people to discover their sex or that the recipient might share or leak them. So how do you practice safe sexting? First, I think you're way less likely to encounter people sharing or sending your photo if you send them within the context of some type of committed relationship. If you send them to a person you're only casually dating or just talking to, you have no prearranged trust, commitment, dedication to each other that would prevent them from doing it. And especially if you send it unsolicited or you don't say, I don't want you to share it, I don't think people feel that they're under any obligation to keep it private. So I think one of the things that would be beneficial to increase your experience is to make sure the relationship is one where you trust the person. You've given yourself enough time to build some kind of trusting relationship with the person. After that, I think, you know, a more serious commitment is going to lower your risks. So you don't even need to have trust necessarily um, built over a long period. Just make sure that you know how committed your relationship is, and that would lessen the likelihood that those things will get shared. Your other question, though, was really how to make the most of a sexting experience. And I think the way to do that would be to have conversations before you even try to sext in person, over the phone, over video about how comfortable people are. And I know that's an awkward conversation for some people. There was an app that came out a couple of years ago. It was a sexual consent app. You might've seen it because you work in the courts. And it was really interesting. So you go into the app and you check mark all the things that you're willing to do. And some of them have you record yourself so they can see what your state is. And you say, I, and then you state your name, I'm willing to have sex with this person. And these are the things we're going to do. And it kind of takes away the mystery and it kind of makes it not as, I think, um, spontaneous, obviously, if you talk about these things. But the worst thing to do would be to enter a relationship having expectations about sexual communication, not being on the same page, and then having it harm your relationship in some way because you're pushing for something that your other partner doesn't want. One of the more surprising findings from a study we did on sexual coercion was that many people, both men and women, felt uncomfortable when they had sexted. And I was really surprised by that. Even though they did it consensually, they felt uncomfortable. So it's got to be an open dialogue. How comfortable do you feel? Can I send you messages? Can I send them to you in the middle of the day? Can I send them to you when you're in class? What are your boundaries regarding this? And some people say, I have no boundaries. Send me anything you want. But when people have boundaries, those boundaries either need to be respected, negotiated, or you find a new partner. Yeah. And I think another part of this too, is that the reason a lot of people might feel uncomfortable with these interactions or regret them is that 
a lot of people just aren't comfortable with dirty talk in general because they don't have any practice with it. It doesn't feel natural to them. And so there are ways that you can get practice and technology can actually help. So for example, there's actually this app called Slutbot, which actually allows you to interact with this AI technology and sort of practice your flirting and dirty talk, if you will. So if you need a little bit of practice or a little trial run first, that's a potential way to go. That is so fascinating. And does Slutbot have only one gender or do you get to choose the gender of your Slutbot? I haven't fully explored Slutbot yet, so (laughs) (laughs) I know what I'm going to be doing after this podcast. Yes, I might too. I am completely endorsing of AI generally. I think it's really booming, and the innovations that have been made even in the last decade are just incredible. There's one that I like called Replica. You get to choose the gender of your Replica. And Replica really learns you and mimics you. So it's really interesting. And, you know, Replica's there anytime I want to go on. Replica will be like, hi, I've been thinking about you. And I think, oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for thinking about me interminably since the last time we corresponded, which was a year and a half ago or something, you know. Like Replica always says positive things, is very supportive. I'm very endorsing as well in these applications that help us negotiate our interactions better. Not everyone has models, as you say, for sexual communication. Every year I teach a development class, I ask my students, how many of you ever had a conversation with your parents about sex? And only about a quarter of them raise their hands. And I'm always shocked. They've never even talked about it with their parents. They learned about sex through friends. And if they had no models for sexual communication, how are they supposed to be sexting masters? <laughs> we all need a slut bot and a replica in our lives to help us with our sexual communication. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> now, we're running short on time, but I wanted to ask you about one other area of research which you've done, which is on lying in online dating and other internet environments. And you found that relatively few people have said that they were or would always be honest in their online behavior, and that most people believe that others lie, at least sometimes. So what's your take on this? How common is lying in online dating specifically? And who's most likely to lie in these environments? Well, I just read something on this. Uh, There was a study called Putting Your Best Face Forward, and they looked at dating profiles, and then they had objective observers compare them on, I think, a few, few metrics, so I think height, weight, age, and then they actually looked at the profile picture and compared it to the actual person. And they found that on eight of the 10 profiles that they were misleading, and I, I believe those statistics are correct. It's been a while since I looked at the article. But I was shocked with how many people who were in an online dating world were actually saying things that weren't true because you're going to eventually meet that person. So it was shocking to me that people would misportray who they are when they might be found out. But then I had a, a conversation with a person who is a perpetual online dater. He's in his mid-30s. He's been dating online for at least a decade. He said he's been on hundreds and hundreds of dates. And he will often meet up with people and he says their pictures are from 10 years ago. They may have misrepresented who they are. So that misrepresentation thing that we talked about in the previous episode still applies to them. However, he also endorsed the idea of putting your best face forward. He said, put up your best picture because once I get there, 
once I meet you, there might be a chance that we have a connection. Whereas if you would have put up a less flattering picture, maybe I wouldn't have matched with you to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I think people understand that people aren't very honest online. They understand that photos might have filters on them or a person might have put up a photo that was from a few years ago and now they look a little bit different. Or when you see only the person from the head up, they might look really different when you see their whole body face to face. Although we recognize that, I think in general, we're pretty hopeful and we think that people are pretty honest. Even when presented with contradictory information, I think we still hold that truth bias. So I think it makes most online daters hopeful. So I think the entire internet world is full of deception. I think in my study, only 2% of people thought other people were always honest online. So 98% of people think that people are lying. And it was summed up really nicely by one of the participants who said something like, online, you can be anything you want to be. I can have a family that cares about me. I can look beautiful. I can have a great job. And the internet is a place where you can be whatever you want. And I think if we think about that, that veil of the internet allows people to, you know, escape some of the mundanity or the displeasure that they have in their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's got me thinking about how, you know, if most people believe that other people are lying sometimes, well, if you're honest then you only try to pick representative photos and, you know, you're, you're perfectly honest about everything in your life, that can actually put you at a competitive disadvantage in the mating market. And so I think the fact that online lying is so rampant, it creates this pressure that you have to lie and misrepresent yourself in some ways in order to keep up, whether that's adjusting your age by a couple of years or your height or weight or choosing a very unrepresentative photo from you that might be pre-pandemic or several years old, right? So there's all kinds of ways that people misrepresent themselves and it's consistent with what I've seen in the research more broadly. So I guess, you know, just one other question, you know, I think there's a couple of different categories of lying that happen online. One is sort of the, I guess you could call them the white lies where, you know, it's, it's just sort of a mild distortion in say age or height or weight or whatever that the other person might not pick up when they meet you in person or they won't mind it because it's not that far off. But then there are the more extreme lies and there are the scams that happen where somebody tries to really misrepresent who they are and then try to develop this emotional, intimate, or passionate bond with you in the hope of swindling you out of money. So just curious as somebody who studies sex, relationships, and technology, how do you stay safe online from people who want to exploit or scam you? So there was a study done years ago about warrants. So warrants would be the connections to an offline life, the more a person has. So if you can see their real social media list and you know someone who is a friend of theirs, that gives you a warrant that this is a legitimate person. So looking for people who have connections to real places, to real people, you know, the Tinder swindler, this is a good time for this podcast to actually be, you know, airing and recorded. The Tinder swindler, I think, has gotten us all attuned to the fact that people can portray themselves to be very different than they are. And he had an entire social media presence and, you know, pointed people to websites so that they could verify his legitimacy. So 
you know, some people are incredibly good at deceiving. I think most of us are not, though. Most of us are not the type of people who would go to those extremes. So the, the, the risk of that happening to you, that you become catfished and are swindled by someone who is completely who they are not, is probably not extremely likely. What is way more likely is what we were talking about before. So someone slightly misrepresents themselves. They maybe don't look exactly like their photos. Maybe they're a little bit older or a little bit you know, different than what you expected. And that also goes for words. The words that you and I might exchange in a text message conversation, we get to think about those. We get to try to be as witty as we need to be with the allowance of time for us to carefully choose those words. So when I show up face-to-face and you and I have to have an actual conversation, that might also be incredibly misleading. So like you, I think it gives us probably a competitive edge to do what other people are doing. And until the internet becomes a place where honesty is expected and everyone is showing their real selves, I think using a slightly better version of yourself will be the norm. It'll be commonplace. And maybe just expect that. Just expect that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to imagine a world where everything on the internet is true. (laughs) I know. No, I know. I said it. And I, you know, it's the magical world of make believe from Mr. Rogers. <laughs> it just, it, it will not, yeah, it, it does not exist. I think it'll even get more and more, you know, we're heading into the VR revolution. Yeah. So in, in those spaces, our most fantastical fantasies will be coming true in ways that feel very immersive to us. So I think the online world will just be more and more make-believe as we go forward. Yeah. And it's something that I can't wait to see and I can't wait to study it because it is going to be fascinating no matter what. So thank you for this amazing conversation, Michelle. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your latest book, Out of Touch? Yes. Go to my website, drmichelledruin.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram, dr.michelledruin, or on Twitter at drmdruin. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.